Welcome to the special edition of Legal AF. This is the midweek edition. I'm your host, Karen Friedman-Agnifilo, and I'm thrilled here to have my friend and former colleague, Joan Aluzi Orban. Joan was a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office for 33 years, was it, Joan? And yes, 33. And so I've, I've worked with Joan for a very, very long time. And Joan is, I used to call, part of the thoroughbred racehorses of the Manhattan DA's office. She was one of the go-to trial attorneys when you had a really serious case or a really big case. She tried some of the biggest cases in, in the office that I'm excited that she's agreed to be here to talk to us about. Hi, Joan. Welcome. Hi, Karen. How are you? Karen, um, for those people who don't know, was my boss at the Manhattan DA's office, and one couldn't ask for a better supervisor and boss. She Mm -hmm. not only was brilliant, but also gave people the freedom to think for themselves and encouraged people to soar in whatever capacity they can at their job. Well, it's very, very nice of you, but today's about you, not about me. Um, and so when, when thinking about sort of talking to Joan and, and talking to you about your incredible career, there's been so many cases that you've tried and won that it was hard to decide uh, which ones to choose from. And, and so the two cases that come to mind that were really, at least to me, just incredible victories and incredible uh incredible trials that you did, investigations and trials. One was the, the was the kind of, I guess it was 50-year-old case involving Eitan Pates. Um, there was this young boy uh, named Eitan Pates who in 1972 went missing. And he was, he started the, the Missing Children Act and the sort of movement. And I, anyone who saw, who, who remembers Uh, Children on Milk Cartons, that started from the Eitan Pates case here in Manhattan. And that case went cold for the better part of, you know, since 1972, they never could solve the case. Right, Joan? Yeah, it was actually 79. But since 79, until a DA Vance came in and asked asked his staff to uh, re-examine and look into the case, it was had very little to no activity. And for and how old was he? Do you remember when he went missing? Six years old. He was born yeah. in 1972 and went missing in 1979. His yeah, first ter- day walking to the his bus first stop day walking to school, right? His first day walking to the bus stop by himself, which was only a block away and in front of a little bodega. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, there was a civil case against a kind of notorious child molester, uh, Jose Ramos, I believe. Right. Yes. And they yes. thought he was they thought he was the main suspect. But then when you and the Manhattan DA's office, when we all engaged in this investigation, why don't you tell everybody sort of what happened and how it ended? So um, Jose Ramos was a likely suspect. He was a known pedophile who frequented the area where Eitan went missing. Uh, so he was a likely suspect. But when you really examine the evidence against him, it was like a house of cards. It wasn't as solid as people had always assumed because he just sort of fit the profile of somebody who would have done this and was really crazy and said crazy things, but none of which was that he had, um, he had killed Aton. Uh, and then um, what happened is that um, the, uh, the DA looked into it again, asked the police department to look into it again. And there was uh, one person who was of interest in the case who the police felt that they had never fully examined and explored a certain area of his house. 
So they actually began to dig in the basement of a carpenter who worked on the block and who, um, who had given Eitan a dollar to help him paint, quote unquote, paint uh, the day before. And while they were doing that, uh, one of the relatives of Pedro Hernandez, the person who actually kidnapped and killed Eitan, called up and said, I've been trying to tell people for years, my son, my, my brother-in-law did this. Uh, he was working at the bodega. He was very young. He was uh, in his late teens. And he saw this beautiful boy uh, and he brought him down to the basement. He had given various versions of why he did it. Um, but he, he strangled him to death, put him in a plastic bag, put him in a box and brought him approximately a block away to, to a basement area uh, in, in the box after he was dead. And how was that? Uh, how was that solved? I mean, you know, obviously it was the brother-in-law came forward and said, I think this is my, my brother-in-law, but what happened to then well, bring a case that you could bring to trial? Well, once we started looking into it, um, we examined the people who this man had been spoke, speaking to for years. And it turns out this man was telling people what he had done. Uh, it was a little bit vague at times. And uh, he wasn't exactly doing it to get caught, but more relieving his conscience. And then uh, the police met with him and spoke to him. And he fully confessed. Wow. He fully confessed. And everything that he said, Karen, was bore out by the facts. You know, he had said he put it down, the box down at basement steps, but that a gate had been moved. And we found the man who moved the gate in 1981, something that this, you know, that Pedro Hernandez would have never known because he left the area never to come back after this happened. Wow. So I think this is kind of an important, interesting thing that uh, people would love to hear more about, which is, you know, just the idea that um, that a real a reinvestigation isn't just, you know, we sort of do a, a reinvestigation of the guy that everyone thought did it. And I think books were written about Jose Ramos being the killer and that there was this whole if I remember correctly, there was this whole like people had what they would call evidence that Jose Ramos did it. And I think there was even a civil suit where he was declared uh, in a civil court as the perpetrator of them in a wrongful death action. You know, like there are a lot of litigation over over the years went into Jose Ramos. And and I think what's really fascinating is, you know, prosecutors really when they when you guys and us, I, I guess, you know, reinvestigate a case, it's not you really, really start fresh. You don't have any pre preconceived notions. You don't have any sort of I'm going to prove that that Jose Ramos did it. Instead, we're going to look and see, just start the investigation over again. And I, I think that's fascinating. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the trial. So there was more than one trial, right? Yeah, sadly, we tried that case <laughs> twice. Why, why um, is that? The first time it was 11 to one for conviction against Pedro Hernandez. And the second time there was a conviction against Pedro Hernandez. Um, what's interesting, Karen, Karen, is that to get back to what you were just saying, is that um, Mr. Morgenthau, who, of course, was, uh, you know, the DA for many, many years prior. Both to of our birth, boss. Yes. Uh, he had the information that everyone else did about Jose Ramos and declined to prosecute him. He knew it just wasn't enough. It just mm -hmm. wasn't enough. So uh, I was really happy to look at it with fresh eyes. There were you know, thousands and thousands of police reports and FBI reports that we really had to comb through. We had a wonderful team. Um, and uh, 
I had fresh eyes because, of course, I wasn't even in the office at the time. I was in high school when mm-hmm. Aton disappeared. Yeah, I understand. And so tell us a little bit about kind of what goes into a trial that old. I mean, there wasn't, there was no DNA, there was no video, there was, I mean, there was nothing, right, that you have today. How do you, and you talked about calling the the guy who put the gate in from 198, whatever you were saying about the gate guy, like, tell us a little bit how you, how you try a case and what kind of evidence you put in, in a case that is, that is that old. That's a, that's, it's very interesting. It really is because what you do is you get, you gather all of the information, all of the information about what happened that day. And then it's a lot like storytelling. Um, and I don't mean storytelling because like, it, it's like, it's fake. It's a story. I just mean in storytelling in a way that jurors can understand um, one prog- progress to another and one step to another and to really paint the scene of what happened particularly when it was such a long time ago. Remember, there were no traffic cams. Uh, there were no videos to present, there, uh, aside from his own confession. Um, there, there wasn't technology. There was no cell sites. Um, so when you think about all the things we have and the tools we have today to present to jurors, uh, it's quite and vastly different than the way we have to try this case. This case is about the people. This case was going back and reaching back all those many years late before and finding some people who remember certain things, finding people who were documented as going certain places and saying certain things. And it was remarkable about how great people's memories were, how consistent they were with what they remembered before, um, how important it was, right? Because you'll, you'll forget the, the face of the person maybe who brings me groceries tonight because it's a non-event. But if you did something on the cusp and right before a child went missing and it was traumatic for you, you'll remember trauma is stored in a different part of the brain. And so we were able to bring back a lot of people who really had great concrete memories and evidence about what happened. So it's a little bit like putting a puzzle together. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I had a I had a list of 100 people who I thought could completely and fully tell the story and then, you know, eliminated a few um, that I thought were repetitive. Uh, But for the most part, we called dozens and dozens of people because we needed the jury to know everything that we knew about this case. And you also had to, there were, one of the things I thought was interesting about your trial was you had to disprove certain things, right? You had to disprove. Go ahead. Tell them the things you had to disprove. Well, you know, we had to disprove the fact that Jose Ramos was seen in that area that day, that Jose Ramos actually committed this crime or what he said um, was just sort of nonsense or cryptic and had nothing really to do with Aton. So uh, we had to disprove that uh, that he was the person of interest uh, and say, although he fit the profile, it was not a likely suspect. It just and was wasn't. that was that in your primary case that you did that, or was that on rebuttal? Oh, it was both. It was, it was both. both. Didn't you also have to? Weren't there? Didn't you have to prove that Aton was dead? I mean, or that he wasn't just sort of runaway or missing, and and that because weren't there sightings of of hit, people who thought had sightings? And didn't you have to also? Wasn't that a part of this as well? So sure, that's exactly correct, right? Because you have to prove the fa- that the crime was committed. 
uh, at all. And if Aton was still alive, obviously the crime wasn't committed. Uh, so we had to explore some of the more interesting or somewhat realistic options of people who said they had seen Aton or that they had they they were Aton or mm-hmm. they thought they knew Aton. You know, it was sad because you know we get phone calls uh, from people who would say. I just saw him in the grocery store and he's such a beautiful little boy. And they're calling us 30 years later, not appreciating or not thinking about the fact that Aton would no longer be a child. <laughs> he would be an adult. Uh, but Didn't there was you no take realistic- someone's DNA? Didn't you do a DNA test of someone who thought he might be Aton? Um, or- there, was, there was a person who unfortunately was mentally ill who believed he was Aton for many, many years. And um, in order to prove to him that he wasn't Aton, uh, I think that there was a DNA sample taken. So Pedro Hernandez was convicted, right? And got 25 to life. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, finally bringing some sense of closure and relief to that poor family that truly never gave up on their child. Never. They um, never gave up. They suffered so poor, so badly. I mean, first of all, the loss of a child is something that no parent ever gets over. And difficult to know when and how they could take their next step. But this was worse because they didn't know, was their child being abused? Was their child chained to a radiator somewhere? Um, Was was their child uh, sex trafficked? They had no idea what happened to this poor child. And so every day was a living nightmare. They'd go to sleep and wake up in the same nightmare. And Didn't they so, leave their phone on? Did they kept the same phone number, right? Kept the Just same in phone case number. he would call, you know. Kept the like, same address, kept the same apartment. After yeah. all of our trial and everything was done and said and done, they were finally able to move on with their lives. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Julie, for a very short period of time, she, she, she died about a year after the verdict. Um, the but Yes. Um, but Ugh, so she... tragic. That's so tragic. But you know what, Joan, you and Cy Vance, frankly, really brought uh, just closure to this family that that never got it before. And so it was just that it was such a meaningful, incredible prosecution. Um, so I had a lot of help. Right. We had yeah, Joel well... Simon, who was such an experienced and thoughtful D.A., he did a masterful job with the psychiatrics um, evidence in the case. Uh, that second round, we had Penny Brady, who was um, who, who was also just a, a, a wonderful and brilliant partner, James Vinicor. I mean, I can go on and on. There are just so many people to thank. That's great. That's really great. Uh, love them all. Great lawyers. Um, so moving on to a case that I think uh, happened a little more recently that I, has really captured the nation, uh, the fascination of the nation, and that's against Harvey Weinstein. Uh, so I'd love to talk about that. You know, that was a case that uh, in, in 2017, dozens of women came forward and reported that he had sexually assaulted them. And I think in 2018, he was arrested in New York. And Joan was the pro- lead prosecutor on the case. I'm sure she'll talk about her team because she's so humble. She never takes credit for anything. But, you know, Joan, you were the lead prosecutor in the case and you brought it to a, a successful a successful resolution. And just last week, uh, the, the trial was um, upheld on appeal. And, you know, there were some really kind of edgy, uh, edgy sort of walking a, a fine line uh, calls made in that case. So I'm sure you breathed a, high, a sigh of relief that it was upheld on 
on appeal. But why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about that case, about the trial and what that was like and, and, and what that meant to you? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have the benefit of your counsel on that trial. And I don't think we have since really ever spoken about it. Uh, I had a wonderful team there too, just incredible people like um, Harriet Galvin and Megan Haas. They're just, one is a brilliant writer. The other one is just a, a stick of dynamite in a courtroom. Um, Harvey had great counsel. He had, you know, um, Adana Rotuno. He had uh, Damon Chironis. He had Arthur Adala and Barry Kamins in the Diana Fabi. He really had uh, a terrific team as well. So he certainly got his day in court. Uh, the thing about the trial, though, is that I could tell you that really just strikes me is that I think it's an awakening for people. It's an education for a jury to know that there are really no perfect victims. Who's a perfect victim of a sexual assault? Uh, No one. Uh, Nobody knows quite what to do. It takes a while for the brain to absorb what's even happened to them. Uh, Most people, a vast majority of people are raped by an acquaintance, not by a stranger. Um, There are, of course, those rare instances where you hear that, you know, women are attacked on the street and what have you. Those are the exceptions, not the rule. Most women are raped by somebody that they know, sometimes a relative, sometimes their own partner, uh, sometimes an ex-partner, a a business associate, uh, someone in authority. There's a power dynamic that's often there, like a priest or or a teacher or a, a boss at work. And so women are um, traumatized by it. And that trauma uh, translates to them thinking to themselves, did this actually just happen to me? What, what was this? What do I do about it? What, if I do sort of shout out what just happened to me, what will the implications in my own life be? Will I be fired? Will I be dismissed as crazy? Um, will I be blacklisted? That's what the women here were afraid of. Harvey Weinstein was a powerful person in Hollywood. Uh, And so it was important for us to acknowledge the fact that women um, women have a way to be able to relate to a jury and to prove their case without even so much a stitch of physical evidence. Uh, It's important to educate jurors on the impact of rape trauma. And so we did a few things that were sort of thinking outside the box here. And that was number one, we called an expert in rape trauma, a psychiatrist who had treated many, many victims of rape and rapists themselves in treating them and figuring out like, you know, what makes people tick and what makes people act in this way. So she was able to educate the jury on issues like you think that a rape victim doesn't then reconnect with her rapist because they do. A lot of women so traumatized are looking to put it in the rearview mirror in any way they can. And they think by just sort of having some kind of relationship with their rapist, that this will be a way for them to be able to normalize the behavior. You know, I don't have to be so traumatized by this. Maybe this wasn't so horrible, but in the end, it really, it it just, it pushes it down for a little while. And then it constantly is bubbling up affecting the future of all their other would-be healthier uh, relationships. So that's one thing women do. Uh, The other thing is that women don't tell uh, many, many times. 
Um, like I said, there's so many things that roll into someone's head. Will I be believed? Do I have physical evidence? Um, what is, you know, will, will this person be believed over me? Was there anything in my behavior that is now going to be scrutinized? When you're the victim of a rape in an open trial in court, you're being sort of scrutinized. Your, your whole life is exposed. It takes a brave person to say, I know my truth and I'm going to speak truth to power. And in doing so, it actually is the most healing thing they can do to take their next step in life and get past it in whatever way they can. So I really applaud the women who came forward. They came forward and they, and, and particularly one who just said, look, I know I'm not a perfect victim. This is the way I dealt with this terrible, terrible trauma in my life. I dealt with it the best way I could, but I'm here to tell you this man raped me. And it how was just so touching. Your, how many charged victims were in your case? And then how many, so, tell, tell everybody what Molyneux is and yes. how many Molyneux victims. So um, in the end, he was convicted of sexual assault against two women, um, but we were able to charge him with sexual predator based upon a, the rape, the brutal rape of a woman years and years earlier. He was acquitted about, he was acquitted on that charge. Um, but I think, uh, of course, you don't know what's in the jury's mind, right? But I think he was acquitted of that charge because they figured it was just so, so, so long in the past. Um, but it was nevertheless palpable. And I think that that woman's testimony significantly contributed to, um, to what happened. So how did, that, how did she feel? How did she feel, by the way? Did you talk to her after the verdict that she, that he wasn't found guilty of her? I mean, yes, he was found guilty and he's going to go to prison. But did, did that impact her at all that he wasn't that they didn't find him guilty of? I think she was terribly disappointed because uh, she felt as though it followed her for many, many years. And she was so, so completely and utterly innocent in a terrible thing that happened to her. But she's strong and she's smart and she truly feels good about herself to have given and contributed to have good. spoken up so that other women don't have to go through the same thing. Oh, and that was what she contributed. But there are also women. So when you speak about Molyneux, right, Molyneux is other acts, other bad acts that somehow we inform what happened in the charged acts, right? So it could be the person's intent. It could be lack of mistake. It could be modus operandi. There is no modus operandi in sexual assaults and that the case law is clear there. But here we were able to do two things, bring up instances where Mr. Weinstein was um, sexually offensive and assaultive to the people we charged in other instances and we're able to, the court allowed us to uh, call three women who were not charged because they were out of the statute of limitations, that we couldn't charge their case, um, but who would say that they were also sexually assaulted. Not to show that he had a modus operandi, but to show instead that he knew he did not have consent. None of these sexual assaults was a, a quid pro quo for getting ahead in a film or getting a part or, or getting successful in the business. And he knew it. He knew it. He was intimidating and brutal to people and he didn't care about the effect it had on them. 
So we're able to call those three women in addition to talking about other instances with the women who were charged. So let me so let me get this straight. So with the women who were charged, there were certain uh, there were certain um, rapes that you were able to charge as separate counts in the indictment, like on this date. He yes. forcibly raped her on that date. He forcibly raped her. But what you're saying is there were other instances of sexual assault that weren't charged either because they weren't in the jurisdiction of Manhattan right. or because they were beyond the statute of limitations, because you can only you can only prosecute the Manhattan DA's office can only prosecute things that happened in Manhattan. So you're saying in order to bring out those other prior kind of bad acts that are uncharged, you needed to ask permission of the court in what's called a motion in limine, correct? Yes, that is. And correct. you did that under a Molyneux theory. And, That's correct. OK. And so Molyneux. And also and also rest just say, which is which is basically a fancy way of saying to look at the whole picture, to look at the the entire dynamic between two people. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. There's a fine line between Molyneux evidence and, you know, this sort of proving intent through these other acts and then kind of crossing over the line of you're really trying to show there's a propensity uh, for this person to commit a crime, which obviously, you know, that's uh, we all know. And anyone who watches even you know legal television knows you can't. That's inadmissible. Um, what what is the how do you thread that needle between um, overly prejudicial propensity evidence versus probative towards proving intent in a sexual assault case. How, how did you do that? Right. We certainly don't want the jury to be confused that we're trying to show, hey, listen, he raped, he did this on one day to one woman, so he must have done it to our charged victim. Um, so we chose cases and instances where the facts were different. They didn't closely reflect exactly what he had done with the charged cases. So the, the, the people were different. The, um, the interaction and the location of the interactions were at times different. Um, but instead, we showed something about him, what was in his mind, what was in his mind, because let's face it, when two people are engaging in a sexual um, you know, act, there is an issue of consent. How do we know someone's consenting? Well, there's a whole, a whole bunch of reasons why we know someone's consenting. He knew people were not consenting. He yeah, knew I mean, it. look, one of the myths, one of the sexual assault myths, myths that uh, was, I think, mentioned in the decision that I think is, is really, you know, in the, in the court decision that just came down is that, um, is that women fight back, you know, and I was a sexual assault prosecutor for many, many, many years as well. And, you know, of course, they're not going to fight back. So in addition to being raped, you're also going to be beaten and choked and punched and, you know, hurt in other ways. Like, you know, of course, you're not going to necessarily when you know you're going to be overpowered by this person because they're physically I mean, this, you know, Harvey Weinstein was was much larger than his uh, than his victims. I, that's what the decision, you know, when I read the decision, that's one of the things they pointed out. He's much larger than them. And, you know, of course they didn't fight back because they're going to lose. And so why add injury to injury? Well, they were certainly petrified and a lot of people react differently than you would think on paper, you, you know, a, a victim would react. Women lose their voice. They, they, they would try to scream and couldn't scream. And a lot of them, they freeze, had, right? They, they were petrified because they thought, even if I fight him off, how am I getting out of this place? 
Yeah. You know, is there, is there someone else here that's going to block me? And like you said, am I now going to um, have further irreparable harm done to myself and my body um, than, than what is happening now? But they were clear that they didn't want it. He was clear. He was forcing it. And, um, and, and so the charges go. What was the trial like? Because, I mean, there was media attention. It, I, I remember just going to work every morning and there'd just be, you know, cameras and trucks and lights and people and the media. T- you couldn't you couldn't open a uh, open a newspaper or, you know, anything without sort of seeing the intense media attention. I mean, was this the most media attention you ever had in a case or or was Aton Pates? Uh, well, what was the most what's what case had the most media attention? Was this it? I don't know. It's hard. To, it's kind of hard to say, but certainly. The media attention here was great. There were people lined up in hallways, lined up to get into the courtroom. And um, that is generally unusual in our practice for people to be sort of, you know, and all the reporters to be in the hallway and what have you. So how do you deal with Um, that as a a prosecutor? I ignored it completely. (laughs) You just tune it out, right? Tune it out. There are so many things going on in the well, which, you know, is you know, where all the parties are seated and the jury and the judge and the court reporter and the court officers in that box right in front of the courtroom. So to me, there were so many things that I needed to pay attention to go in the well <laughs> that I sort of ignored what was going on behind me. Although I know that it was very important to the women who testified that people came to support them oh. um, and to came to, to sort of cheer on is the wrong word, but to be there silently supporting them and, and giving them some um, confidence in what they had to do, the terrible tasks that they had to engage in. And I don't blame the defense lawyers at all. They, they certainly put us through our paces, which is exactly their job to do. Uh, so he had a very aggressive um, defense team, which was fine with me. And I think that um, he sat there at times stone-faced, um, I don't know what was going on in his head. I don't know if he thought the whole thing was silly. I don't know if he thought that he certainly wasn't going to get convicted. Um, but what won the day, Karen, was the brutal, raw honesty of these witnesses. And it just the came way, through in their testimony. It, all the cards were laid out. Everything there was, good, bad, or indifferent, was put out to the jury to, um, you know, and and the jury obviously saw that. Uh, And I think that for sexual assault victims, as difficult as it is to go forward and testify, for them, they are then free. To whatever capacity you can be freed of a terrible event, they were freed from this after they stood up for themselves. And did these survivors know each other before the trial? No. <laughs> and did they, did they get to know each other during the trial? Well, we introduced them on the day of sentencing. We, we wow. invited them. Uh, we invited them to the DA's office and, um, and, you know, yeah, they, they were able to, uh, you know, meet each other. Wow. That must've been powerful. Oh, really, really great. Really just, I don't know, life affirming. How, how long was the jury out for? Um, that's a very good question. They were out overnight and I don't remember how much longer, but it was maybe, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly long. Uh, it wasn't terribly short either. And they thought about if, it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, 
Bill Cosby was prosecuted for sexual assault. And there, too, they yes. put a Molyneux evidence in. And yes. wasn't that case reversed because of the Molyneux no. issue? <laughs> no, no. People think it was reversed because the Molyneux issue. Absolutely. Well, clearly, not. since I'm reversed. one of those people. No, it, it was reversed because a prior DA um, sort of insisted that Mr. Cosby testify about some of these events and promised him immunity from criminal prosecution. And so that immunity was said to have been indelible. I know that it is once again on appeal, um, but it had nothing to do with the Molyneux witnesses. And in fact, the same expert testified in the Cosby case that that testified for us, Barbara Ziv, fabulous expert, articulate, and, and really reached the jury. That's great. Well, congratulations on the conviction being upheld. Not, I'm sure you, you know, not that you had any doubt, I'm sure, but it's still got to be a little bit of a relief, right? Of course. The, the, the appellate division were, was very thoughtful. They examined carefully every single issue and, and really stuck to the facts and the law. And I think in doing so, um, made people feel, gave people confidence in the law. That's for sure. So you were the you were the whole time I was there. You were this great trial lawyer who tried so many amazing homicides, and I don't think you ever lost a case. By the way, um, a lot you did a lot. You had a lot of great success and great trials, but then you became a supervisor at the end. You became chief of the trial division, which uh, is, I think, the best and hardest job in the office. How do I know? Because I had that job once. Um, yes. But you're 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 the head of the unit that has about. 350 to 400 lawyers in it that handles every single arrest made by the NYPD uh, every uh, for as for as sort of small as stealing a pack of gum to as high as murder, terrorism, sexual assault and everything in between. Uh, yeah. What did you think about being a supervisor versus, you know, being the one to, to do it yourself? Like what, what was that like for you? Um, I loved it. I loved it. It was another side of the the things that I loved about being in the DA's office. I love the investigation. So to be able to listen to a set of facts and suggest 10 avenues of investigation was, was great. Uh, I got to know a lot of colleagues that I don't think I would have ever crossed paths with. with. I got to know aspects of the law that I hadn't dealt with myself um, and work with people. I really just loved working with the fabulous lawyers at the Manhattan DA's office. So you walked out uh, when Cy Vance was no longer DA, right? Yes. Um, so not that long ago, less than a year. And what are you doing now? So um, I am doing a few things. I um, believe it or not, I have an agent who I'm hoping um, is able to get me more jobs and, and speaking jobs and what have you to, to further educate the public on what it is to be a prosecutor and what it is that we do. Um, I also am a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, so I do a little writing for them. And lastly, Karen, I am trying to, um, to, to sort of land at a firm that will take me off counsel where I could, and this is my greatest wish, where I could bring women in who have been sexually assaulted because it's not too late. They, the, you know, Governor Hochul has signed a bill, it's an Adult Survivors Act, that has given a one-year look back 
on all sexual assaults, irrespective of whether or not the case was taken. The case couldn't have been taken because of a bar barred by the statute of limitations. In the state of New York. In the state of New York. It's a a one-year look back. And I know that, um, you know, prosecutors, former prosecutors like you and I are just the right people to be able to listen to what women have to say, examine the facts, examine the evidence, and perhaps give people the justice and the closure that they need to put the terrible event in the rearview mirror. Yeah, no, it's the the New York did that with children in 2019, where with the Child Victims Act, where they did a one year look back. And, you know, that was that was an incredible thing. And I'm so glad that this new governor, Kathy Hochul, who's really terrific, by the way, I I really like her, is doing this now for adults. I think it goes into effect six months from the day it was signed. And I think it was just signed a a few weeks ago. So I think we all that's correct. Yeah. So you and I have six months to gear up to figure out how to how to do these cases. Because, well, I, I hope people contact this. us. Yes, yeah, I well, hope people hopefully contact they will. Us. Because okay. I, I, you know, um, I think, again, it is a nod to now the world is educated more to understand how it is that sexual assault victims do not go forward, do not come forward immediately and why they don't come forward immediately. Yeah, well, in 2019, so, in 2019, New York extended the statute of limitations for so the yes. statute of limitations, as as everyone knows, is the time from the time something happens to the time uh, you bring a case, you have a certain amount of time to do that. Um, but it's both civil and criminal. There are statutes of limitation, and and there was a there was a statute of limitations um, that was extended for sexual assault for civil sexual assault cases in 2019 uh, yes. to 20 year, to 20 years, and that's recognizing the fact that uh, a lot of women aren't willing or able or mentally prepared to come forward right away. You know, some, all the things you talked about that uh, earlier about uh, that Dr. Ziv talked about, about how people sort of go through all sorts of different reactions after a sexual assault, whether they blame themselves, will people believe me? Um, This person's more powerful than me. They could ruin my life. You know, all that. There's a lot of people who just don't have, the ability uh, or the strength, you know, I'm always just, I I have so much admiration for people who have the strength and courage to come forward because frankly, the criminal justice system, especially is really, can be really traumatizing to, to victims, you know, just the cross-examination and telling their story over and over again and risking the jury, not believing them. I mean, I, I don't, I can't really blame certain people who say, you know what, it's not worth it. I can't go through it. And so this recognized that the, the 2019, extension of the statute of limitations recognized that fact and extended it to 20 years, but that was only for cases from 2019 going forward. So there was all these cases from before 2019 where the statute of limitations expired. And some of them are going to be these Catholic church cases. I mean, you know, granted those were mostly children, but there were some, you know, some adults as well, but, you know, teachers that, you know, that whatever, you know, people, professors or your boss or, you know, all these complicated relationships of people who are distant relative, you know, there are just so many cases. All of that. And since the Me Too movement, I think, you know, you were saying this, I think the Me Too movement really gave people the courage to come forward, right? That didn't happen before. Yeah, I just think that people sort of woke up and banded together to say, 
this has happened to so many women, so many women who ha- perhaps hasn't, haven't shared it with their partners or their families or their friends or anybody because they, they doubted themselves, they blamed themselves for being in a situation when none of it was their fault and they were just horribly victimized. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So John, how can people reach you? How can all these people who, you know, want you to represent them, how can they reach you? Um, I know you'll well, land in a firm quickly, but in the meantime. Yes. Um, uh, they can link, they can reach me through LinkedIn. I'm in, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and I could give you my email address. It's J I Orban O R B O N at gmail.com. And I'm hoping that they reach out to both of us because I think that you possess, you know, that sort of institutional longstanding knowledge of sexual assaults. And I, I, I think that we see how a path forward to proving these cases now yeah. that were never seen before. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really incredible opportunity. You know, the Me Too movement, uh, I, I remember where I was when I saw coming over the internet, the hashtag me too. And I, I just remember how powerful it was and how much it really, you know, really changed things. You know, I was a prosecutor, a sexual assault prosecutor before the me too movement. And it's just the, the judgment that, um, juries in particular, you know, would kind of impose on, on survivors. Well, how come you didn't do fill in the blank, you know, it was just, it was really hard sometimes. And, and that was re-traumatizing for people. But I think the Me Too movement has done an incredible, um, an incredible service to educating the public as well as our legislators, which is why I think these laws are getting passed and, you know, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully people will, will, finally get the justice that they deserve because, you know, it's, it's such a difficult thing to, to live through, you know, and it's, you know, we call them survivors because they really are survivors, you know, and, and I'm just always in awe of these individuals. Um, well, Joan, thank you so much for thank joining you for having me. Legal AF. Uh, it's so, such a pleasure, you know, as prosecutors, we're not allowed to talk publicly, right? We're not allowed to talk to the press. We're not allowed to talk to anybody, especially about cases or anything like that. So it's one of the things that is just really great about leaving is we can finally talk about these issues freely and openly and to get to have the opportunity to have someone with a career like yours. Um, I, I could we could go on for two more hours to talk about all your cases. Your cases are were the most some of the most fascinating and impressive ones in the whole office. I mean, it's really your it career. Was, it was it's just been amazing. The Manhattan DA's office, as you know, was a very difficult job at times, difficult <laughs> to do, even more difficult to leave. Um, and it does, it's, it's such a, um, it's, um, it's opening an entire new world to us to be able to openly talk about um, what in fact is going on um, when crimes occur and to educate the public more so that everyone feels as though we're all working together. Well, thank you, Joan. And thank you so thank much you, for Karen. joining us. It's great to it see you. It was good to see you. Same uh, here. Shout, shout out to everyone at Legal AF, the Midas Mighty. And we look forward to uh, this weekend with Michael Popak and Ben Mizellis. Mm-hmm.